Okay, stirring stuff, yes? So last time we had the Ten Commandments. That's exciting. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments. They're familiar with them. And then we get this stuff. I don't know if we have any lawyers here, but this is an awful lot like law school. Going through case law. Uh, going through the details of how these Ten Commandments are to be lived out. Let me give some context before we get into some of the detail of this text. Remember that we're in 19 through 24 of Exodus, and this is the marriage ceremony of God with his people. The ten words that God spoke to his people are the outline of the kind of life that they are called to cultivate together. And I, and I want to encourage you with all of these laws to imagine what kind of society it would be if everyone followed them. What kind of society would it be if all of the Ten Commandments were followed? Now, we fight over whether they're displayed or not, but the question is, what kind of society would it be if everyone followed all of the teachings of the Ten Words? Imagine what these words, especially the, the teachings about Sabbath, imagine what that would have meant to recently freed slaves who never caught a breath, who never got a break. At the end of 20, after the, the 10 words have been read, we're still in the middle of this marriage ceremony, and we're going to continue with the marriage ceremony tonight. So just really quickly, I want to remind you of the sort of outline of how this goes about. I say it's a marriage ceremony. It's God's covenant with his people. So first, he calls them to consecrate themselves, to wash their garments and gather before him on the third day. Then God speaks the 10 words to them. And then here in these chapters... God unpacks the ten words. He explains them. He illustrates them. He, uh, he refracts them into various examples of the kind of life they might live. And at the end of all of this, Israel says twice, all of the things that the Lord has said we will do. It's their I do to God's uh, covenant. And the consummation of all of this is a feast. It's a feast before God in God's presence where they celebrate this covenant and they have fellowship with God. And this is a brief detail that I, want, that I want to note. It says your fellowship offerings, there's various kinds of offerings. The fellowship offering was the culmination of all the offerings because it was about celebration. It was about communion. It was about intimacy with God. And so all of this leads to Israel's intimacy with God uh, at the end of this marriage ceremony. And it's important to understand this pattern because it continues to be the pattern for us as we gather. This is a New Testament pattern as well as we discussed on the road to Emmaus and various other places before. We still follow a similar pattern. We gather to consecrate ourselves to God. If we need to, we make confession of sin. When we worship, we ascend by faith through the gift of the Holy Spirit into God's presence where we hear his word. And then we have a covenant meal where we celebrate this covenant that God has given to us. And then he sends us forth to live out this covenant. So tonight we're going to pick up with this next section and these teachings here. And let me say a few things about these teachings, and then I'm just going to highlight a few of them. We can't cover all of them. First, as I said, it's an expansion of the ten words. The ten words are like pure light. And this sermon of Moses that God gives to Moses is like the rainbow. It unpacks what these various commands might look like in its circumstances and different cases. For example, he says repeatedly, if this happens, then this is what you should do. If this happens, then this is what you should do. So these words, again, one of the things we said in the prior sermon was don't obey the Ten Commandments. Delight 
in the teaching of God. Moses is unpacking the teaching of God, and Israel is to be the delighted student of God's teaching and to live out all of these teachings in the land. They're not to be obeyed in a machine-like way and merely, yes, we've complied with these rules. They're to be understood and unpacked so that we can live them out in a way that demonstrates the character of God. Now, a brief comment before I get into some of the details of these texts. We might say as Christians, so what? We're under a new covenant, and we don't need to care about this. But Jesus came to fulfill the law. It's important that we note that. Jesus said, don't think I've come to overturn it. I've come to fulfill it. And not one jot or tittle of the law will go away. Yes, but he did that so we don't have to. Well, he did it because we couldn't do it. But then he gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could follow him in doing it. Paul says that those who walk in the Spirit fulfill the law. And here's a very important question I want to pose to everyone. How can we fulfill the law if we don't understand the law? We're not under it in a slavish way. God has given us his Holy Spirit. But if we are going to walk in the fulfillment of his law, we need to have an understanding of it. And as you'll see, and you can probably think of many examples, the law is fulfilled in the New Testament in all kinds of ways. Children, obey your parents, right? so that you may live a life long in the land. That's in fulfillment of the, of the commandment in the, in the 10 words. So at every turn, Jesus himself fulfills the law, and then he engraces his people to continue to do the same and to show a kind of society that would be different from the society around us. So what I'd like to do is just stop briefly on four of the themes that Moses unpacks here uh, in these laws. And the first one is slavery. And the first thing I'd like to point out about slavery is consider what this might mean to a whole nation who are recently freed slaves. Do you follow me? The first thing God does here is unpack what they should do with slavery, and they are recently freed slaves. Does that make sense that sort of they're going to be have their ears pricked? They're going to have their ears open to, oh, well, yeah, we know what it's like to be a slave, and, and what's he getting at? So Moses here under, un, under, opens up this theme about slavery. Um, and there's several things that are important to understand what this is like. But I want to read this scripture. It came up twice in this section. God says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Your experience of oppression, Israel, your experience of slavery should shape the way you treat others. You should be a society that knows what it is like to be oppressed so that there's no oppression in your society. So what is slavery in their context? First of all, we have to acknowledge that slavery has been universal in history. Even after we, we outlawed slavery here in the United States after a very costly war, unfortunately, slavery continues in the world, even in the United States. So it's universal. But these teachings here, I want to suggest as harsh as they seem to us, actually transform something very bad. They transform it and redeem it. So what does this look like? Let me lay out how an Israelite might become a slave. A fellow, fellow Israelite owes you a debt and he can't pay it. What would happen in this case is that he would become your slave. And this would be something like an employee. You become his employee for a period of time but it's a limited period of time. It's important. After seven years, after six years, they're to go free. 
So he can't pay his debt, so he becomes your employee for seven years in order to pay the debt off. This allows him the dignity of paying off his debt. This is important. He doesn't, you don't just wipe it out. There's no bankruptcy here. He's got to pay the debt back. And it allows you, to whom the debt is owned, the dignity of having some recompense for what he owed you. You following? But notice also, despite some of the things that sound harsh to us, this slave retains human rights. Right? If you kill him, it's on the slave owner. If you harm him, there's recompense in various ways. So he retains dignity. He retains uh, rights. He's not to be abused. And the whole thing, and this is the thing I want to stress, the whole thing, because of the seventh year when he is to go free, tilts in the direction of independence and freedom for the slave. All right, the goal is for him to be able to pay off his debt so that he can then go free and be independent. Now, I want you to also consider perhaps this person was unwise and that's part of why they they got to be in debt or maybe they stole and they couldn't pay back what they had to and they get into debt. Imagine what working for a potentially wise master for six years might do for this guy. He might become wiser. He might become more God-fearing. He might learn some things that keep him from getting into the same situation again. So can everybody see how this is geared towards maturity, independence, and freedom? Imagine what such an Israelite might learn indebted to a wise master. And I think what all of this suggests is that God wants his people ultimately to walk in maturity. He doesn't want slaves to permanently remain slaves. He wants them to be freed. He wants them to be mature and he wants them to be contributing members to the people of God. So I think all of this tilts in the direction of this independence and this maturity, but it's also humane in all kinds of ways. In Galatians, Paul says, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Can you see how all of this is pointing to, I want my people to be mature. I don't want this slavery to be permanent. Now, just compare what I've just said to slavery in the United States of America as it existed for a long time. First of all, much of it was started by man-stealing, kidnapping, which here it says death penalty. Right? You kidnap a guy to sell him as a slave, death penalty. In chattel slavery in the United States, it was all, all, often permanent. There was no way out. There was no jubilee. Though we have small examples of slaves suing for freedom after a certain period of time and getting it, but that's rare. No human rights. Okay? Masters could often do almost anything they wanted to their slaves. And slaves were deliberately kept very often from the things that would have made them independent, wise, and mature. For example, like literacy. All right, very often masters didn't want their slaves to have literacy because then they might figure things out and want to be free. All right, so that's slavery. And again, I know there's some things in there that that are hangups for us, but I want to hopefully you can see how it's all aimed at liberty, at freedom, and ultimately maturity. Let's look at stealing. There's a lot to be said about property. And you look at the commandment not to steal and you think, okay, God likes private property. And this is true. But in this section, we get an unpacking and an elaboration on what that looks like. 
And the main thing I want to draw our attention to is if you steal something and you're caught with it, you have to pay back double what you stole. Okay, the law, the way it works is restitution. You have to return not just what you stole, but double what you stole because of what you stole. Now, again, consider what this does. If I've stolen something and I have to return it, I have to return double. I'm going to have to work for that. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to think about that. And that's going to maybe form and shape me in a particular way. If I've stolen and it's gone, I've sold it or it's killed, notice I have to pay back four times or perhaps five times. Again, consider what, may, what having to give restitution would do to the thief and how it might form him. And I want to point out that this, this law right here, this statute is precisely what Zacchaeus responds to when he responds to the teaching of the Lord. Everybody remember Zacchaeus? He's a tax collector. And these tax collectors used soldiers to muscle people out of their taxes and often to get more than they were supposed to take and pocket it themselves. Zacchaeus had made himself rich, extorting people with, uh, with muscle. He was like a mafia don. Notice what Zacchaeus says in Luke 19.4. He says, I will take all of my possessions and give half to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I will repay what I have defrauded fourfold. Zacchaeus knows this law. Zacchaeus has heard the teaching of Jesus. He is like, man, this, he's the guy. And I, I want to be his student. And I know that I have, I have violated this. So Zacchaeus is repenting according to this very scripture there in the New Testament. You see how it still applies? Zacchaeus understands that. And notice Jesus says, salvation has come to your house this day. Because he's responded in repentance to Jesus' teaching. Now, contrast this law and these laws about restitution with most of the laws in the world around Israel. Does everybody know what most of the laws stipulated for theft? Death. Especially if you stole from a wealthy person. Or the lopping off of hands. All right? I want to suggest that, again, this is more humane. It's aimed at the reform and the changing of the person who stole. Uh, And it responds to the dignity of everyone all around. Not only that, though, it's not just this restitution, but notice what it says, and this is one of my favorite things in this section. If you notice the ox of your enemy, guess what you can't do? (laughs) Old Johnson. (laughs) That's great. His ox is gone. Nope. You go and you get his ox and you take it back. Or if the ox is under a burden, you go and deliver it from the burden. Now, I want to suggest that this is on the way to Jesus' commandment, love your enemy. And what it says here is not you have to feel nice about this guy who is your enemy, but you are called to take care of his property for him when he can't. And you know what? God knows that when you do that, it's going to start to winnow away at your resentment in your own heart. Does that make sense? So I want to suggest that we're well on the way to Jesus' teaching of love your enemy in this, in this section. So there's, there's slavery, there's stealing. How about the Sabbath? I don't know if you've noticed, but the Sabbath is like this repeated theme that goes on throughout this again and again. First of all, uh, you're to set your slave free in the seventh year. But then he says you're to have this weekly Sabbath. And then you're to have this every seven years. You're meant to make the land lie fallow and rest. And we haven't got it here, but it's going to come up later. Every 49 years or in the 50th year, you're to cancel all debts. This whole society 
was built in with this cycle of, we don't want these debts to go on forever. We don't want them to be generational slavery. We want these to be broken. Now, again, I want you to imagine two things. Imagine what the Sabbath would have meant to a recently freed slave who has worked day in, day out, no break for all his life. And to find out that God says on the seventh day, you don't have to work. I want you to rest and you're going to be provided for. Imagine what that would have meant to them. They couldn't have, what, what, really, what? So that's one side of it. This, God wants to give rest. And this is very important too. God says, and it's not that you get to take a break and you can send your kids and your ox and the foreigners who work for you out to work. No, you, you take a rest and you give rest. It's your responsibility to extend that rest and notice even to your animals. And as a side note, I love how in this section and really in all of scripture, you see God's compassion even on animals, right? God cares about them and he cares about how we care for them. So they're to give rest. So one side of it is imagine what somebody who's never had a break, what it would be like to have a genuine rest where you're provided for. But on the other side, I want you to imagine what it would mean to take one day off if you're a subsistence farmer. Because that's what most of Israel was, okay? They're not, they didn't have bank accounts, they didn't have 401ks, they didn't have insurance. They worked for their livelihood. And God says, I want you to take one day off where you don't work. I want you to imagine what that would, that would have been like to them. That would have been like, are you kidding me? We're barely getting by. And you're asking me to just, you're asking me to, I mean, I can't, there's, you, you know all the things we got to do? This was, an, this was a request of God for radical trust. It was a gift, but it was also a request for God for them to give radical trust to him in all of these things. And again, rest for the land every seven years. They were to cease agricultural production in those years so that what grew in the seventh year could be given to the poor. And again, I already mentioned the, the every 50 years debt cancellation. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. All right, the last thing I want to mention is the weird thing at the end. Anybody know what I'm talking about? What am I talking about? <coughs> Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Now, a traditional interpretation of this is don't eat meat with dairy. I actually don't think that's what's going on here. What is milk to the kid? It's meant for his life. It's meant for his nourishment. What is God saying? Don't allow what is meant for life to bring death. And this works in all kinds of ways. Don't allow what God intends to give life to bring death. The temple was a place that was meant to be for the healing, for the restoration, for the worship of the people of God, and it became a haven for cruel oppressors of the people of God. That's boiling a kid in its mother's milk, right? The home, as God designed it, is meant to be a place of nurture, teaching, discipline, and care. And in families where it becomes a place of harshness, judgment, anger, and resentment, that's boiling a kid in its mother's milk and the kids are going to get away as soon as they can. Does that principle make sense? I, that's what I love about scripture. Sometimes the most bizarre things hide some of the most important teachings. And of course, I can't help and when I think about this, don't allow what is meant for life to bring death. I can't help but think about the issue of abortion, right? Where this is meant to be life-giving and nurturing and it becomes a matter of death. 
So hopefully this is just a taste of the ways in which these laws, these statutes, though we don't have ox, we don't have goats, we don't have sheep, the principles underlying them still apply. And the Spirit is meant to help the people of God figure out how these principles take shape in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our relationships with one another. We have to understand them so that the Spirit can lead us into creative application of all of these things. I want to comment briefly on the rest of the ceremony. Um, it's, they're going to go on, and, and Israel says twice all that Yahweh says we will do. And then they have this wedding feast. They have this uh, meal where the 70 elders go up the mountain, and they eat, and they see God, and they're not destroyed. And then this is very important, and we didn't read this, but Moses is to sacrifice animals, and he's to take the blood of those sacrifices and sprinkle it on the people and say, this is the blood of the covenant. And the reason this is, is, is significant is this is the exact phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke when he institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, this is my blood, the blood of the, of the new covenant. So I think we're to understand that this marriage ceremony of God with Israel was pointing forward to the marriage ceremony of Jesus with his bride that we celebrate and anticipate at the table every time we gather. Remember I said before that communion is a covenant renewal ceremony where we come and we hear the word of God, we confess our sins, we respond in faith and, and we give ourselves to, yes, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you and I want to learn to take your teachings and unpack them in my life. We hear that teaching, we respond to it. We share this marriage feast that our Lord himself provided out of his own flesh and out of his own blood. And then we go forward to enact his teachings in the land. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's stand up as we gather to come to the Lord.